This is the Life in the Front Office podcast. I want to first thank all of our listeners to making this a success and helping us continue to grow. We bring on sports executives and professionals from around the industry, all different aspects of the industry, to provide insights and advice for those who are trying to enter the sports industry or those who are already in the industry just looking to learn something new and continue to get better. If you like our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and visit our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com for more episodes. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and today I've got Rick Burton, a co-author of mine with 20 Secrets to Success for Student-Athletes Who Won't Go Pro, and is currently the David Falk uh, Sports Management Professor at Syracuse University. Rick, really looking forward to talking to you about all your past experiences in the sports industry and, and what we can learn from them. Uh, really enjoyed, obviously, working with you on the book, but uh, and we can we can dive a little bit more into that uh, as we go along in the podcast. But uh, you have quite the amount of experience in multitudes of the industry, so would love for you to kind of give us your story on on how you got to uh, the academia space and and what you've done in your career. Uh, Rick, welcome on the podcast. Well, thanks, Jake. It's great to be on with you. And, and it's kind of been a, a long, strange, nomadic journey, which may only be an indication that I couldn't keep a job. But um, I started off as a sports writer in upstate New York for the Syracuse newspapers and then got hired by Miller Brewing Company out in Milwaukee and did sports PR for them before going into marketing uh, and helped, uh, helped for a long time with the advertising associated with Miller light beer, which was, you know, ad campaign that for people older than you, they'd recognize it because it was a pretty famous ad campaign, uh, left Miller to go to work for a sports marketing agency in Connecticut and worked primarily with the National Football League, but also with Gillette, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, and uh, Universal Studios out in L.A., uh, and then got an opportunity that was really counterintuitive to go teach at the University of Oregon, which was just starting a sports marketing program. And I just felt like it was a kind of a great opportunity to go sideways or, or you know, just do something that didn't fit the normal trajectory uh, for someone in the industry. And uh, University of Oregon was creating the first ever sports marketing program inside a college of business. And uh, I knew Nike was out there and Paul Allen and Portland Trailblazers. And, and so I jumped on it and we spent eight years in, in Oregon where I opened up my own consultancy and ended up doing some work for sports leagues in different parts of the world. And one of them was the Australian National Basketball League. And I uh, ultimately had an opportunity to move to Australia and become the commissioner of the Pro Basketball League down there. Uh, the National Basketball League. And uh, we lived in Australia for four years. And then I came back. I was the chief marketing officer for the U.S. Olympic Committee for the 2008 Beijing Summer Games. And then have been at Syracuse, went back to the educational side. And I've been here at, at SU for the last 10 years. 
Uh, and during that time, I've had a chance to work on a number of books, uh, not the least of which was getting to work with you on the 20 Secrets book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, you've had quite the path and, and the breadth of experience. I guess as you sit in your seat today and you reflect on all the things that you've done and, and the lessons that you've learned, you know, in your seat at Syracuse, as you teach students that are trying to get into the industry, what are maybe the, the one or two biggest things uh, that you can uh, pass down to them or you try to instill in them as, as they look to enter the industry? Well, I think one is they've got to develop a skill in something. Um, I think it's, it's hard to get into our industry just saying you should hire me because I'm good with people. Uh, you know, it helps to be able to write uh, or to be able to employ marketing tactics or to be able to put on an event or uh, to sell tickets, uh, to analyze data. And, and we've just started a sport analytics program. Somewhere along the line, everyone in the sports industry is looking to make more money for someone. And generally, if you're going to help someone make more money, you've got to bring a skill set with you that's going to fit their need. Uh, so that's one of the things I try to preach. And, and I think the other is just that to understand capitalism, you've got to be proactive. You've got to be efficient in terms of how you think about problems and, and being able to, as Wayne Gretzky once said, skate to where the puck is going. So a lot of what I'm trying to talk about now is how gambling is going to change uh, the sports industry, how esports is is going to take revenue from the traditional model, uh, and getting people to understand that it's not 1970 any longer; it's really 2020. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and as you've sat in your educator seat for for a bit now, what's the biggest thing that's changed amongst the students? Well, I, I think, you know, we hear a lot of times that this generation is entitled. I'm not convinced that that's accurate, but I think they expect to be um, amazed on a kind of regular basis. And, and they've been used to short bursts that come from things like Facebook, social media. Uh, they they want to be entertained and they have maybe shorter attention spans or they're easily distracted if what they are engaged with suddenly gets boring. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, a shout out, a cautionary tale for groups like Major League Baseball, which a nine inning game can take three hours, an NFL game can take four. And this generation seems to be saying, I'm not going to sit there and just pay, un you know, give my undivided attention to your game or league for four straight hours. I'm going to need to multitask. I'm going to be involved with fantasy sports. I'm going to be online with my friends overseas. And I think uh, a lot of the leagues are doing what they can, but they're also kind of caught in the traditionalist mindset. Uh, so those are some of the challenges that we talk about in class. Now, as, as you try and prepare your students for entering the industry, uh, those that are in the Northeast, you know, you may talk about location and opportunities. And quite frankly, you're a great example of moving where the job is, uh, moving to Australia, you know, halfway across the world. What kind of advice do you give in that realm uh, based on your experience? And, and what can our listeners learn from your move to Australia and, and back to the States? 
Well, I think it's a great question, and, and whether they'd learn anything from me is questionable, but I think you've got to be prepared to go overseas. I think you've got to be prepared to learn a second language. I got off easy by going to Australia, which was an English-speaking country, but you know, probably a third of the world's population is be split between China and India. Uh, and the opportunities are going to be in those countries as they become more and more capitalistically efficient. Um, I tell my students it's a global economy and to not be able to engage customers on other parts of the world uh, means that you think the 350 million in the United States are enough. Uh, and I think groups like the NFL are at risk because um, it's a sport that's only played in the United States and, and it's followed uh, to a limited degree in the rest of the world, whereas basketball, the NBA, and, and football, what Americans call soccer, are followed globally and, and probably in every country in the world. So that Manchester United or Man City or Liverpool or Arsenal, in a lot of ways, are bigger brands. Bayern Munich, um, Barcelona, Real Madrid are bigger brands than the Yankees or the Cowboys. Um, but if you don't speak Spanish or you're not willing to learn about cricket and how to kind of talk to people in the subcontinent, uh, you've got a real challenge, I think, at least looking 10 years out. And, you know, in terms of what students can do to prepare themselves for opportunities like those, you know, across the country or in a, a much, much different part of the country than maybe where they grew up, are there things that they can take advantage of while they're students or for those listeners that are uh, in grad school, you know, while they're in grad school, are there resources they can take advantage of to um, put themselves, you know, quote unquote, ahead of others? Yeah, I think there absolutely are. And it may depend on whether you're uh, in college at a university and, and in a sport management program or in a business school um, I do talk to my students about the fact that there are smart cities and not so smart cities and cities that are on the way up and cities that may not be quite what they used to be. Um, Los Angeles is a great example of a city that I think is very much on the way up. They've added two NFL teams. They're building a brand new stadium. Uh, they're going to be hosting games for the World Cup in 2026, and then they'll have the Summer Olympics in 2028. Um, that's a city to go to because things are happening there. Uh, I think Seattle is a smart city just based on the technology. San Francisco, uh, because of all the companies that are out there that are, are so integral to how we understand media and content and online ordering and, and real-time reactions to uh, opportunities to spend money. And, and I'm not going to say that New York City isn't smart or Chicago or Miami, but I do tell my students that you've got to be aware of where things are going on and, and what's really getting hot or interesting. Um, and I think at universities, th there are a lot of people and resources to take advantage of. Syracuse does an L.A. immersion trip where they take students out to L.A., for their entire spring break. Now, I think a lot of people think the spring break is a chance to go to Florida or San Padre Island in Texas or go to Mexico. Um, but a lot of our students are making the choice to spend their spring break 
in an immersion program that is going out and really talking to all the leaders in Los Angeles. And my guess is that a lot of universities are really creating opportunities like that for the people that are really committed to getting into this industry. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, as, as those students get into the industry, they help those who are coming behind them. But let's talk about being in the industry and then moving your way up. Uh, we kind of know that there's some sort of level in which people start to weed themselves out of the industry. Uh, and then there's a certain point in, in many careers where they're kind of in for the long haul. Uh, can you talk about maybe your experience and where you got uh, within your career to where you maybe realized where you were at in, in that sense? Well, I can, and, and I uh, hopefully I'll frame it in a way that benefits the listeners. But uh, my parents were immigrants, and while I wouldn't say we were dirt poor, um, we were probably lower middle class. And, and so um, I think I grew up with a sense of having to work hard. We didn't have any family members that were going to create connections for us. Uh, and I ultimately got married shortly after I got out of college and, you know, had this really strong desire to provide for my, my wife and my family. Um, you know, I think the modern student is not looking to get married right away and, and may not actually want to work 70-hour weeks or 60-hour weeks. Um, I think that there's a sense of, hey, I've earned the right to have some fun and, you know, I'd like to enjoy my life and, and it's not important to me to own a house or to own a car. I'll take Uber. Um, I'll use Airbnb. I'll couch surf. Um, and so I think that, you know, if I were to give advice that, you know, went anywhere near work hard and, you know, be willing to put in long hours, it wouldn't resonate. Um, so I think where I get it around to maybe your listeners is, you know, understanding what your value set is, what's important to you, and, and being able to actually think about, am I trying to get rich? Am I trying to get powerful? Am I trying to live in a part of the country where I would really enjoy living? Uh, because I, I love to run on the weekends, or I love to kayak, or I love to surf. Um, will it be important for you to be able to say, I work in the sports industry so that you'll be popular at cocktail parties? <laughs> um, you know, there are a lot of people who just being able to say, oh, I work for the New York Yankees, um, will substitute making any kind of money um, and, and they'll be willing to work for virtually nothing in order to say to their friends, yeah, I got hired by the Yankees or I got hired by the NBA. Um, and then I think, you know, shortly thereafter, the ego, the utilitarian value of being able to tell people that, you know, you work for the Chicago Bulls wears off because suddenly their friends are making a lot more money or they have a lot more free time. And that same individual who wanted to work in sports is now finding that they're working, you know, weekends, holidays, nights. Uh, they're working on their birthday and on their anniversary, and they can't come into work hungover and things like that because our industry is just a little bit too demanding. So, you know, I think there's a moment where a lot of people have to really figure out what is it that they want. And I'm not convinced anymore it's a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess as you were in charge or, you know, in, in the C-suite, we say, um, what did you see from a uh, organizational perspective in terms of 
people who wanted to be there, go to work versus the ones who were egotistical. Did you see anything different in terms of skill sets? Yeah, I think it's, it, it, you're hitting at a really interesting point, which is um, commissioners or chief executives, people in the C-suites are, are looking for people who are really hungry, that are initiative takers, that are proactive, um, that are quick, that are good at their job, uh, that want to do more. Uh, you know, I think we all want to get out of the office at five or six and go home and have a separate life. Um, but the work has to get done first. And I know that sounds terribly old school, but I think that, you know, the reality is, is that bosses are, are looking for the hard workers. Um, and of course, hard workers do get abused. You know, the old cliche is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, but it's probably those 20% who get promoted. And it's probably the 80% who don't get promoted, who actually start to think about wanting to work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that for that 80%, the, the kind of the gloss that represents the sports industry of, you know, how cool is it to be working in sports? Um, you, you know, it kind of wears off. I just did a column with Norm O'Reilly, one of our co-authors on 20 Secrets, shameless plug for <laughs> our book. Um, and, and we did a column for Sports Business Journal called Sweet Little Lies. And you know, the, the lies that we tell each other is that working in the sports industry is really cool and it's fun and, and it's exotic and, and people are going to be impressed with you. But, you know, one of the old cliches that I've heard is that if you love to golf, you'd never want to work in golf because you won't golf anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, and I can say that to you, you're with the PGA Tour and I, and I don't think you'll spend a lot of time out on the golf course spending, you know, six hours on a golf course playing uh, because there are going to be a whole lot of things that need to be done. Um, but I think a lot of people, if they heard your title and, you know, saw that you were working for the PGA Tour, they'd be like, oh, man, it must be great playing all the best golf courses all over America. And you probably would end up saying, I don't golf very often at all. Right. No, and, and even and even in the baseball world, too, it's the same thing. It's, um, you know, you're you're running around the office way more than you're ever out at the field. Uh, quite frankly, I think the only the only quote unquote position that you would have, I think that where you could really, truly say you're out on the course, you're out on the on the field would be a coach. I mean, and that's that's where they're supposed to be. Right. I mean, that's that, that is their office. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that I think what Norm and I put in our column was that people who go to sporting events are going there to be entertained. They're there to be a fan. Mm -hmm. The people who are working at the sporting event are being paid to work and do work. Uh, and their work doesn't usually involve playing the game or watching the game. That's not how we're going to make money. Right. Um, so I think that that's a, a hard wake up call for a lot of people who want to go into the industry. And one of the things that I saw as the commissioner of, of a league, albeit a small one, was a lot of organizations are very streamlined um, we don't have the, the luxury of having a lot of people extra to do work so that everyone has an easy load. If, if we had three people, a lot of organizations are saying, can we figure out how to do it with two? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that that becomes hard for some people to actually realize that they're going to have to work hard uh, in order for someone else to be profitable. 
and the profits are not always going to be shared with the line management. I mean, if you look at most pro sports leagues, the money is either going to the owner, the star athletes, uh, and maybe the GM or the coach. Um, it, it's not going down to the, you know, the fifth level down, you know, working in community relations. Right. What's maybe one thing that surprised you the most over the years working in sports, uh, whether it's similar to the topics we've just covered or, or otherwise? You know, I, I think what surprised me is that uh, I had to learn to not be a fan of some things to see it as a business and, and that where I could be a fan had to be kind of in my spare time away from being in the business. So I'll give you an example. I, I did a lot of work for the NFL early in my career, and I did work with the NBA. And, uh, and then I went over to Australia with the NBL. And I, I couldn't be a fan of an NFL team. I couldn't be a fan of an NBA team. Um, I, I ultimately kind of got down to about the only thing that I was quietly a fan of was Syracuse University, which was my alma mater. And while I couldn't go to their games, I could periodically check in to see how they were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that uh, it didn't destroy my love of sports, but I had to understand that people weren't paying me to be a fan anymore. They were paying me to help grow the business. Right. And so when you sit in your professor seat, the educator seat that you're in now, does that change? And and then I guess also shed some light on to how the academia world differs from actually working in, in the front office day to day. Well, I think the old adage that I, I share with people who think they'd like to teach or, you know, be in a university setting is that uh, those who can do and those who can't teach. Uh, and it's really unkind to all of us who teach because I think many of us still can do many things, but the longer you're out of the industry, the less you're on the cutting edge, the less you're dealing with the realities of what's going on. So I can talk about drone racing and, and how drone racing is going to get bigger or how esports is a global phenomena but I'm not working in esports, And so it's going to be very difficult for me to know exactly what's going on uh, because I'm not actually walking behind the chairs while the players are playing. I'm not staging those events. Um, and so there, there's a beauty to being able to teach and inspire people and, and provoke young students to be curious and to think about, you know, what they'd like to do with their lives. But I always need to be careful with, you know, my ability to tell them this is exactly how it's going to be when you get out there, because it's already light years different from how it was five years ago. Right. Well, and, and things change over the years. So, you know, for those who are, let's say, in the industry right now and they're thinking, oh, I might want to teach um, or I might want to be an adjunct professor or whatever the case might be, how has academia changed over the last five years or 10 years? Well, it depends on the school that you might be involved with. Uh, just to use Syracuse as an example, Syracuse is a research university and emphasis is really placed on research. Uh, and yet in the sports industry, you'll find that, you know, most pro sports leagues and teams and professional sport organizations are not looking to academic journals 
to rethink how to sell a sponsorship or how to think about, uh, you know, running the team. Uh, but if you're a doctor, you're, there's a really good chance you're looking at the Harvard uh, Medical Journal uh, and, and you're keeping up with kind of the most recent discoveries in, in surgeries or in cancer, you know, invasion. It's, so one of the things is I, I think for people in the industry who think they might like to be an adjunct or teach, you have to understand, are, are they looking for you to teach a lot of classes um, based on what you know, uh, or are they potentially looking for you to do research and be part of a, a tenure track system where you're going to you know, need to think about getting your PhD and doing a dissertation and being committed to the goals of the academy. I think most of the people who are in the industry are not interested in going back to school to get a PhD or in doing a deep dive on a research topic. So many of them, if they come into the academy, are really thinking about, um, you know, how do I teach and stay relevant? Right. Well, and and I guess as you went through school and you see all the grad schools out there, they're obviously a lot more online schools now, right? And even more and more sports management programs where, you know, you said you were tracking the cities that were on the up and up or or not on the up. And in terms of the, the sports management landscape, where do you kind of see that going in the next five years or so? Well, you, theoretically, you'd have consolidation that some programs would not be very successful and others would get bigger, possibly at the expense of some of the smaller programs. I mean, I think there are a handful of great programs out there that have built reputations. Uh, certainly, your alma mater, Ohio U, is, is kind of the grandfather of them all, and I think they continue to have great cutting-edge faculty there. Uh, the University of Oregon, where I was, Syracuse University, where I am now, UMass has long had a big reputation. Uh, I think Miami is doing some really interesting things. Um, but again, it's not to, and I, my apologies to anyone who listens, and I didn't name their school because there are a lot of great ones, but there are some programs that have a single individual trying to run it kind of almost, you know, spare time. And some programs that have, you know, 20 faculty members and they're generating research and they're putting on conferences and symposiums and, you know, have put a lot of energy into helping the students uh, design the career that they mm -hmm. want and, and helping them get internships or capstones. Um, and, and so placement has become, I think, a huge part of these sport management programs and Students have to be thinking about, is this school going to be able to help place me or give me the knowledge that I need to have a skill set that's going to be worth something to someone? Right. So for those who are thinking, you know, which school do I go to? You want to try and look at the network, right? The network of people that have maybe gone there. If you look at the industry and you connect with folks, you know, you maybe that's how I got to Ohio as I started to connect with some people. Uh, in the industry, and I started to notice a trend that, you know, one after another had gone to Ohio U for the grad program, and so I found more out about it, et cetera, and, and the rest is history. But um, as, you know, as I'm going to kind of, as we start to wrap up this episode, dive into your writing experience, uh, I find it fascinating because 
I think you would agree, but writing is, is almost a, a lost art in these days with, with technology and social media, et cetera. Um, you know, we, we, we obviously did the book together and, and you've got plenty more on your resume. Uh, but what can, what can people learn from the writing process that maybe people don't really pick up in today's, today's society, day and age? Well, a lot of people are down to 140 characters, and, and that's kind of unfair to Twitter because I think they've given them now more than 140. But, you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and Snapchat and Twitter, you know, are, are really predicated on short messages and short attention spans. And to write long form, to write a, a good memo or to write a, a story or to write content, because content is still king people still want to be entertained they still want to read and and view and, and you know i think organizations now are having to think about how to customize their highlights and how to customize uh, the material that they put in front of their fans um and people who can tell stories who can find stories are always going to be in demand because we need our heroes and it's not enough to just throw a touchdown pass. I need to know how did he get so good at throwing touchdown passes? And, you know, what, what was his journey to go from, you know, the sandlot to high school to college to the pros and overcome injuries? And there are people who want to know about those things. So I don't think, you know, the creation of content is going to go away. But, um, you know, the next generation is going to have to figure out how do we need to tell that story? And as you know, you're at Syracuse is a journalism focused school. What are some of the things that you've learned uh, having been there for a bit that you can share on the storytelling side for those who are either in that part of the career or interested in it uh, as they look to, to opportunities in the industry? Well, I, I think one of them is that and I tell this story and it's not original on my part, but that when I was growing up, we people read books, and books are kind of like scuba diving. It's kind of like doing a deep dive. And uh, I think today's reader or today's consumer is much more like a person on a jet ski, and they kind of skim along the surface. And when they come to a place, they may be willing to, to swim, kind of as it were, to get in the water. But uh, to get them in the water, you've got to really be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and columns these days um, are, you know, 800 words, 600 words, a thousand words. It, it's we're not talking about writing in some cases more than two pages uh, of typed copy. But you better make sure that those two pages are actually interesting um, and that every sentence works for you, because if you're boring, the jet ski is going to move on. No, that's great. That's a great analogy. And I guess as we wrap up, so I guess the last thing I've got for you is in your Olympics days and as we prepare for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, um, what's something that the average person who works in sports may not know because, again, they maybe haven't worked in the Olympics, um, but what was, what's something that you learned from your days in Beijing that, that uh, we ought to look out for from whether at the sponsorship standpoint or or a business standpoint. Well, my my um, suggestion or offer would be that countries and the cities that host the games always have an agenda of what they want to accomplish. 
Sydney in 2000 wanted to use the games as a tourism device to get people to come to Australia. Um, Beijing in 2008 wanted people to understand that China was coming out as a major economic power um, and that you could do business in China and become very successful based on the number of people who live there. Uh, Tokyo has said they want these to be the technology games. And I think Americans who could be listening to this podcast might think that their technology is cutting edge or up to date. And we're usually a generation or two behind Japanese and Indonesian and Singapore and Korean technology. And so my advice to people who are thinking about the 2020 game. To look at the technology and how that's going to reshape sports because the Japanese are going to be much further ahead in their deployment of technology um, that Americans are ready for. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Rick, really appreciated having you on the podcast today. Learned a lot from you. Uh, really enjoyed your insights and uh, we hope to have you on again soon. Always enjoy having another co-author on the podcast and perhaps we'll have you on with Andy. Well, I'd love to do it. And Jake, thanks so much for it. Your questions were great and uh, best of luck with the podcast. I want to take the time to thank you for listening to Life in the Front Office. And if you liked our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We greatly appreciate it. And for more episodes, visit us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com. And please continue to share uh, with your colleagues on social media and help us continue to grow. Thanks.